0: welcome back to Doctor Gong's Drumcast I'm sorry to say that it's been a while, we haven't been on online, we haven't been doing this drum cast for way too long. But now we're back, and hopefully better than ever, you'll be the judge of that. Um, today's guest is... Drumroll, please. Not a drummer. Imagine that. We're having a non-drummer on The drum podcast, or the drum cast as we call it. And, um, why not a drummer? Why a bass player? Yes, today is all about the bass player, Billy Sheehan. Well, he's not a bass player. I would probably have to say that Billy Sheehan is probably the bass player. And, um, I saw him in a clinic in Oslo a while back. And, In a room full of bass players, he was asked the question, what is your biggest inspiration? And he said that it was drummers. Drummers were his biggest inspiration. Now, that's a very generous thing to say in a room full of bass players and other musicians. And, uh, well, he means it, quite obviously. So I thought that was more than good enough reason to invite him to Dr. Gong's drum cast. And, uh, yes, we did have a very interesting talk He's got so much to say. He's been doing so much for so many years. Billy uh, started up with Talos out of Buffalo, New York. Then made it in. he played with UFO. He played with Michael Schenker. And then suddenly he was playing with David Lee Roth, my big hero, for those who know me and know my musical and, and rock taste. Uh, and after that, after David Lee Roth, it was Mr. Big, and it's just been going on and on and on and on and on. This guy is like he's, he's nonstop. So, I, uh, I made the connection to Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, and I had a fantastic talk with the man himself, Mr. Billy Sheehan. So, how's everything in Nashville?
1: Fantastic. I'm in my garage here with the doors open, uh, playing my bass. That's Washington, what you're doing yeah, right now. Squirrels and chipmunks uh, fight over the peanuts that I'm tossing out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing. It's great. And the weather's okay in Nashville?
1: Beautiful, yeah. It's uh, it's warm, but it's uh the air is still and the air and it's so clean and smells fantastic. We live uh, not like in deep woods, but we have woods around us and it's just uh serene, peaceful, green as can be and packed with all kinds of uh, creatures very
0: nice nice i've i've understood that a lot of musicians and s- some that i know and several that i've heard of have actually moved to nashville the last couple of years the last five ten
1: years maybe it seems to be yeah, a, quite a, a few quite a few we, of all genres too yeah i'm not a country i'm not a country and western guy uh a couple the couple pieces from the old days i like but that's not my thing so we got a dear friend of mine, Ray Lugier, a drummer from Corn. I have a, we we started a production company together with an with an engineer, and we've been working on people's records and tracks and stuff like that. There's a uh, Tom Peterson from Cheap Trick is here. A whole bunch of people.
0: Wow. Yeah, I knew Ray uh, had moved down there. He's also played with Dave Lee Roth, one of his drummers. Did you ever? You never played together with Dave though, did you? The two of you, right?
1: No, no, we never did. He was in a much later incarnation of of whatever Dave was doing. So, yeah, uh, no, but we uh we have uh, lots of great stories to share, though.
0: <laughs> I, I I can imagine. But you said you you started a production company, so you the two of you like as a as a session team
1: in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, I do. uh, Well, we all uh, pitch in on the product on producing. I the the, the one main uh uh artist we're working on now i'm producing that Ray played all the drums and another friend of ours scott who is a great engineer recorder guy mixer guy and he's uh we're about two-thirds of with you that record then we're gonna finish off the new talus record
0: oh really you're doing the uh, Talus record
1: yeah yeah we uh recorded the drums before all this all the uh, virus uh, uh, struck. And so now we've got uh, a few more steps to take. And uh, we're about halfway through that now. And, uh, and I'm like a, a dozen or more other artists whether we just do a single track for two or five or a whole record. So it's, 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 it's a lot of fun and it keeps us busy. And uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing to produce a record. So I'm, I enjoy it very much.
0: So there's, it's been quite a few years since Talos, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, well, I left Talos in the summer of 85 when I joined Dave Lee Roth. There were two versions of Talos. Uh, the 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 version that I left in 85, we refer to as version 2. It's actually about version 18, but uh, okay. as, as, as the years have gone by, uh, uh, that, that uh, was a four-piece with a lead singer, and uh, the other version was three-piece where we all sang. And so we've done a bunch of... Um, uh, reunions and uh, a live album with the uh, three-piece version and those guys are uh, they don't uh, play out much anymore uh, so uh, the guys from the fourth four-piece version asked me if I'd like to do a reunion show with them a few years ago just for a benefit we did it was a lot of fun so we have since done a bunch of shows and now we're Recording all the all the songs that we never actually recorded for real. <laughs> so we're and we're not rewriting them or modernizing them or doing it just like we did it back, just how we left them. You know what I mean? Oh, so you're re-recording them? No, they were never recorded.
0: They ah, I see, I see. Because the 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 most of your material is is not out there on on Spotify or anywhere, right? From the old Talis stuff?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I've I've tried for years to get anything on streaming and nobody knows how to do it nobody can do it and i see thousands and thousands and thousands of artists with all their stuff on spotify but for some reason everyone that's associated with me has no clue in the world how to get a track on spotify (laughs) so here i sit (laughs)
0: well this podcast goes out on spotify so if you need any help i can i'll I'll try to do my best for you (laughs) (laughs) So, but tell me, you you were playing in Talos, and and that's when you guys, when Talos was supporting Van Halen, right? And that's kind of that's kind of the first, if I know, if I'm guessing right, or if I remember right, that is kind of like the first uh, step for you up into you know big time, right?
1: Yeah, opening uh, for those guys, uh, they got to know us. I stayed in touch with them. I went out to a lot of their shows after that tour in 1980. And then, in, uh, sure enough, in '85, Dave called me to come out to LA. So, one thing led to another. Similarly, before that, we opened up for UFO in I think '70, 70, maybe '79.
0: Okay.
1: And and Michael Schenker was in the band, and then he oh, yeah. maybe '77. Uh, and and then he contacted me uh, to come out and uh, to go to England and work on his first record with him. Then after that, UFO contacted me when Michael was out of the band, and I did a tour with them, playing so, as a
0: bass player in UFO.
1: Yeah, oh, I didn't so know. So I that. did a, Europe, a European tour uh, playing with UFO, and uh, yeah, So, so the 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 moral of the story is it's a good idea to uh, do good when you're in, a, in an opening slot because <laughs> the headline band is going to see you and it might turn into something. In this case, in both cases, it did. So that was pretty cool.
0: So, so I have a question. How does a band like Talos, How did how did you guys get the support for, say, Van Halen, like back in nineteen eighty? How did that happen? Do you remember?
1: Well, we became a big local band, so uh, we eventually became, you know, one of the biggest draw uh, bands of Buffalo, New York, and we started to spread out: from Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, Syracuse, up to Toronto, over to. Erie, Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh, and then Cleveland, and spread all around a big circle. For anything that was in an eight to twelve-hour drive, was in striking range. Which, in as far as Buffalo, New York, is concerned, that's 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 a lot of people. That's New York City included, Boston, um, uh, Baltimore, uh, all those places. Even St. Louis, we hit a couple times. So we just began to spread the word around, and our local. Uh, promoter would use us sometimes uh, when we were uh, to as an opening act, like the UFO thing and a couple other situations we opened up for we open up for Aerosmith one time and a couple other bands that needed help uh, in a particular situation for ticket sales yeah. so they put the local band on that drew a lot of people so everybody would come out to the show so we would serve a purpose you know uh, by chance, the local promoter was, was a quite a powerful guy and he uh, started to get involved with us as far as management goes, trying to help us out.
0: It wasn't Harvey he Weinstein, a... was it? Say again? Was it Harvey Weinstein?
1: It was Harvey Weinstein. Wow. Harvey Weinstein along with Brad Gray. Now Brad Gray sadly passed away well, not too long ago, but he became the head of Paramount Films in, oh, yeah. in, in LA, so he was quite a powerful guy also. And Harvey had part with him in new york city i don't know if brad was ever involved with him with miramax or not but they were business associates early on yeah so harvey got us a, a, a showcase in front of a woman named barbara skydell who was at premier talent where which was one of the agencies that harvey used to hire bands for for shows the who and van halen and all a lot of huge bands where premier talent was one of the uh uh the most foremost uh, booking agencies for uh, for A-level bands uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Frank Barcelona, I believe, was the gentleman who ran it. But Barbara Skydell came to see us play, and she b- b- said a, an offhand remark, oh, you guys should be opening for Van Halen. We thought, ha, huh, that chance that'll ever happen. <laughs> so sure enough, uh, they sent a tape out to uh, Van Halen. Ed heard it, and said, they said, do you want these guys to open for you? And he said, sure. So there we were.
0: Well, you know, I've, I've heard a rumor, and I, I think, I don't know if Daily Roth said this, when you joined his band, was that probably like in 85, 86, around that time? But he said you guys were so good you got kick off, kicked off the tour. Was that correct?
1: <laughs> That's not true, no. We, okay. we finished the tour. We did the last show. I think it was in Florida. And we actually were going to continue on and go and get uh, do a tour with Pat tour after that. But uh, everybody kind of wanted to go home. A triumph triumphant return uh, to uh, Buffalo after the Van Halen tour but no we didn't get kicked off the tour That was we finished all the shows you know Dave was uh, Dave is great at making these colorful uh, scenarios yeah uh, and they and his his hand is not on the Bible and he's not taking an oath of uh, <laughs> of absolute truth so it's a somewhat dig- it's to some degree entertainment so
0: <laughs> so um I, I have a you said you guys opened for Aerosmith how do you remember anything about remember when that was and how that was?
1: We did it twice. We did it at the auditorium in Buffalo. Uh, they were wonderful guys. And then they did a secret show under the name Dr. J. Jones and the interns.
0: Yeah, I've heard about
1: uh, that. Yeah, and we opened up for that show uh, at Harvey's Club in Buffalo, it was called Stage One. A lot of huge bands played at his club. It wasn't a big club, but it was a it was a great showcase club. Actually, U2 opened up for Talus at that club. So it was
0: U2 that. opened up for Talus?
1: Yeah. That's amazing!
0: I saw okay. you two in Oslo uh, opening up for Joe Cocker. Um, cool. So that was probably
1: like '82 or something at a festival. But it- yeah, this was their very first uh, station wagon or van tour of the U.S. Yeah. I didn't even know who they were. Somebody asked, "Who's the opening act tonight?" And I said, "It's something about a submarine, some kind of submarine band." Because <laughs> I was thinking the I couldn't remember you two, but I remember you two as a German submarine. So I had no idea. So, and they were very nice people, and they sounded great, and. Uh, Uh, Years later, they played at Rich Stadium in Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills Stadium, and sold out, huge show, and they're giant now, and and Bono told the story from the stage how they opened for Talos. They're in their first show in Buffalo, and the audience, a lot of people thought it was bullshit after the years went by you know so when, when bono actually said it and i actually somebody sent me a bootleg at the show of him saying it so i got it on i got it i got the audio of it but when he finally said it all the, the uh, sound of all the jaws uh, hitting the ground was uh, was quite uh, cacophonous <laughs> <laughs> really finally everyone found out it was actually true
0: did you guys become friends with them with that band with you two? no
1: uh we uh they were but they were um I'd heard they'd mentioned this a few other times and uh, here and there and they left a nice note in the uh, dressing room. Thanks so much for, you know, letting us, uh, uh, play, you know, cause we let them use full PA and lights and everything as we usually did. And uh, it was signed the edge and a friend of mine was a big fan of theirs. And I, so I gave her the note and so she, she kept it in her collection for years. Very nice people.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about managers. Um, this this show is mostly about drums and drumming. We'll get to that, but also about music and the things around. Um, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein as a manager. You know, this guy's had a lot of t- people talk about him, and he's been all <laughs> over the media and everything. We don't we don't need to spend more time on Harvey Weinstein. But there's a character that I'm really interested in that I don't get to know much about. That's kind of like this uh, guy who hasn't spoken up for many years. And that's Pete Angelus, Dave's Davey Roth's manager, and also became manager for the Black Crows. Um, you,
1: you're not in touch with him anymore, are you? No, I haven't spoken with him for many, many years. So I God, don't know. I don't really know much about what what he does now, or uh, in fact. So, but uh, he, sorry, he was I'm sorry.
0: He was kind of Dave's right hand when you played with him, right? Yeah. And and how did that how did that dynamic work? I mean, if you can remember anything, like like how how was this how was the scenario with, with him? What, what was what what kind of did
1: he do? I mean, I'm not really sure. I, I uh, I'm kind of notorious for not getting too involved in the business. That's probably smart
0: <laughs> in a way. What's, what's that? Well, that's probably smart in a way. I mean, if if you don't well, need to,
1: yeah, you hire people to do that and you trust them that they will do a good job. And I've been very lucky to have. Uh, some some uh, uh, interaction with some great managers. One particular, Herbie Herbert, who was the uh, Mr. Big manager. Yeah, probably one of the greatest managers ever in the world, and one of the sweetest guys too. But I didn't really know too much about what business was going on. I just know Pete was there, and he was originally the light man. Yeah, for yeah. Van Halen, and, and uh, then Dave. Most everybody when Dave left left with Dave.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, m- I remember reading that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I, I don't. I, I, I'm sorry. I can't. Uh, I don't know too much about what the details, uh, uh, offhand. So, but uh, I know. I know he was there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, um, th- this is a, a drum podcast, as you probably understood. And yeah. and the the reason I'm having uh, for the first time a bass player on this drum podcast is because you were doing a clinic in Oslo, Norway, not too long ago. Could have been six months ago a year ago or something like that and I was there and uh and you said something first of all when I asked a couple of questions you were very very friendly and made me feel really good about asking stupid (laughs) questions from a drummer (laughs) you didn't know that (laughs) but obviously, but um uh this uh, I think it was a girl up front she she asked you what is your inspiration and I'm pretty sure she meant like who who do you listen to of maybe other bass players but you said right away that I take a lot of inspiration from drummers. And I thought that was True. a very generous thing to say in a room full of bass players. So, I think that's more than good enough reason to invite you on a drum podcast because I'm guessing this is is this your first drum podcast?
1: Uh, I've done, you know, articles and and uh, interviews with drum centric uh, entities before. <laughs> so, well,
0: that's good to hear. You know,
1: and it, it it is a big uh, uh, a big part of of what I consider the most important aspect of a band, and as a bass player, the drums are the are the that's the guy who I'm focused on. People always talk about the guitar players, but it's it's bass and drums that really you know are the foundation of most modern popular music.
0: I would say so, yeah. Uh, but um, so, so who I mean, you've worked with a lot of good ones, a lot of great ones. Um, but you know, explain to me the the, the way you you know listen to drummers, and and who who have been kind of like a big inspiration for your playing of other drummers that you have played with and also that you haven't played with?
1: Well, um, my favorite musician in the world, who I consider the greatest musician I know, is a drummer. That's Dennis Chambers. Yeah, yeah. I I say that because I've had the uh, pleasure and joy and honor of working in close proximity with them and seeing how he manages to put things together, and make things work, and add more. You'll give him a drum beat for a song or an idea. He does it, and it's automatically, everything is better. (laughs) The whole song is better. The whole piece of music is better. He's just a way of enhancing anything he's involved in. And it's it's, it's quite fascinating to watch, because a lot of people, "Eh, okay, drums are drums. Let's move on and really work on the rest of the song, where where wherein if you get a really great artist as a drummer or a bass player or guitarist or vocalist too, they should be able to do something that moves everything along farther than it already is, makes it all better. Uh, But seeing it come from a drummer is unusual to a lot of people's eyes, but I've, but I have seen it in many instances and Dennis is a master at it. Not only that, he's just an easy guy to work with and a wonderful guy to tour with. And And those are very important factors too, because we all know of uh, some great players, and but they're difficult people, and they're hard to deal with. And you don't, you know, at the at the end, hey, you want you want so and so to play? And I go, uh, yeah, <laughs> but and then, and then the but comes in there, but I don't want to <laughs> deal with this or that or the other thing. So it's uh, Dennis says n- nothing of, of that, and most yeah. people I play with have nothing of that. So that's a good thing.
0: Well, you, you have to choose to work with good people. I mean, not only you know great musicians, but I, I, a good. I mean, I, I can just imagine what it must, must have been like to work with Ginger Baker. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic drummer and a very interesting character from afar. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah. I can't imagine him being that easy to
1: work with. Yeah, I. Uh, well, I. You know, it's a. It's a small business, really, the music business, and among the players, reputation spread very fast. And uh, I know of some uh, – and a lot of times people, the general public has no idea, and they see a particular artist, and they love them, and they – but but if they worked with them, they'd find a, quite a different story. Yeah. Uh, but it goes both ways, too. Some, some guys that you might consider to be difficult are the sweetest, most wonderful, giving, generous people you can imagine, and vice versa. Some yeah. people you think are a saint, uh, you wouldn't want to be within 20 feet of them <laughs> in any situation, so. But I, I'm, fortunately, the drummers I've worked with have been great people, uh, but also spectacular players. And uh, I'm, I consider myself very, very grateful to have had those combinations uh, built into the people around me. You are experiencing
0: a gong production. I, I, there's two drummers that I that I know that you played a lot with um, of course Greg Bissonette which is I mean he's fantastic very very versatile and he's done like all these incredible gigs but I also have to say I find it interesting and very cool that you have a, have a company now with Ray Luzier because I really like him as a drummer as well he's uh, I, I only know the stuff that he's done with Daily Roth corn was never really my thing so I haven't heard so much of that. But I've seen him a couple of times, lives seen a couple of times live uh, with Dave, and he is just an incredible player. He can kind of like just kind of drop the beat, kind of like stop and do a pause, and just come back in. He's so he's so um, he feels so safe in the music and safe in the beat <laughs> that he can just like drop it and come back in. And I haven't seen that many drummers do that. And I, he really really amazes me.
1: Yeah, he's quite a, he's a wonderful guy and an incredible play. And uh, one of the particular record we're working on now is with a songwriter. And they're just straight up songs. It's not like a musical fest thing. It's not like a blazing drums and bass and guitar. It's just basic songs with chords.
0: Yeah, yeah. Nothing flashy. And he's keeping
1: time. Yeah,
0: yeah, What's yeah. That? It's nothing flashy. It's nothing like technical or soloing. No, it's just like, it's nothing,
1: yeah. Nothing at all. And and Ray is treating it so brilliantly. With a fine, fine-tuned nuance, finesse, uh, and uh, amazing groove, and his fills are purposely lazy, so they so they don't get edgy and pushy and fast. So they really make the song just fall into your lap. And <clears throat> he's done just a great, great job at a, at very simple playing. Yeah. Now, Ray and I also are going to do a bass and drum record where we just go out of our minds and do. Do, do his wildest, wildest stuff we can imagine. So there's a complete polar opposite, of course, but uh, it's really great to see him do the fine stuff, you know, do really quiet and kick-hat snare brushes even. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a really, uh, his sense of time and his musicality is, uh, is uh, uh, quite astounding.
0: Well, I would also say that for him is probably interesting. Interesting to, I mean, corn is is pretty technical and very physical, and to do something else is is a is a kind of relief as a player because you just get to relax and or just explore things you haven't done for for quite a while and use muscles and and use like your your body and mind in a way you haven't done in a while. That sounds interesting. But I, I didn't. Who was the, who are you making an
1: album for? If you if you can say, his name is John Statham. John he's just Statham. a songwriter.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, J O N John Statham, S T A T H A M, and it's this he's put out a couple of records and a few little things before, but he's mostly just a songwriter and out of Nashville. I played bass. No, he's actually uh, he just moved from L.A. to Nashville. Yeah. Uh, initially, he's from, he's from upstate New York, but he's. Uh, I did a songwriter night with a friend, and he was he happened to be a part of the uh, uh, ensemble. And we played one of his songs, and he was just really. And I thought, man, this song is really put together well. and really works great. And I said to him, you got any more songs? He goes, yeah, I'll send you a couple. So he sent me, emails me two songs, bang, bang. These are hits, man. <laughs> i got any more? He sends me three more, bang, 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 those are hits. It's just great. Not my particular style of music, but you can, you know, in many ways you can tell a hit. You could see something you see something that would have broad appeal to a lot of people and uh uh just just great great story songs with these brilliant stories built into lyrics and and he has got an excellent voice too and great chord changes too uh steve Lukather refers to chords uh, you know, like adult chords that they use in uh, <laughs> dodo as opposed to the super simplified so it's great to have a story songs very simple but with adult chords and changes and everyone who's heard it just loves it but it's and i'll be playing bass on it and i'll be doing a lot of big whole notes uh you know it's, it's going to be nothing i don't think there'll be an eighth note in the entire record. But, <laughs> looking <laughs> but forward but to because okay because i uh i don't I, I i love all kinds of music i've got an itunes collection that is over two terabytes of Music I've collected my whole life, and uh, it's uh, it's all over the map as far as styles go and genres go. And I do like a lot of different things. And I think so. When you get back to when I get back to my main thing, which is hard rock and metal and you know aggressive music, I come back with more of a vocabulary when I do things that are out of the genre. I come back in, and I got a kind of a different way to look at things. Sometimes doesn't mean I'll be playing light or or, or even playing whole notes. But uh, but uh, there's a time and a place for everything. And it's, it's uh, uh, musicians. I, I always encourage musicians to get involved in a lot of different genres, a lot of different kinds of songs, a lot of different kinds of playing, because it just really uh, enhances your character as a musician. And, it, and the heaviest death metal heavy player goes home and listens to Frank Sinatra for a couple of nights. He'll come back with it. You know, a different point. Now, they can still play death metal and heavy, you know, goth, whatever, but there's going to be an aspect to it now that separates him out from his peers, which I think is always an important thing to do. And it's just kind of move, you have your own unique individual style and idea. I remember when going backstage with Van Halen, thinking, oh, they must be back there listening to all kinds of hard rock and metal. And Sinatra was on <laughs> in the dressing yeah. room, you know. So, uh, it's it's uh, I, I love to to move around genre wise occasionally, but my main thing, of course, is hard rock, heavy metal, straight up.
0: Well, I think it's good for dynamics, you know, just not only dynamics in your own playing, but dynamics in your own life and for listening True. to. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I also'm basically hard rock, you know, guy, but I really love if there's a great country song, and I'm not yeah. a, not a huge country fan, but some of the uh, older outlaw stuff I think can be pretty good, and there's some pretty cool players today as well.
1: But green also, grass and high tides what now green grass and high tides forever there you go there you go yeah oh, what a great song you know? yeah fantastic
0: yeah so but i mean it's good dy- dynamic to have like you know listen to different genres of music i couldn't i couldn't bear just doing one thing or just listening to one thing my entire life that's not possible because you need you need the inspiration like you said You're a hard rock guy, but you love a good, well-written song. But you also are a songwriter, and and, and do you you also still write a lot? I know you practice a lot on your bass guitar, and that seems to be a lot of your main focus, but do you also do songwriting?
1: Quite a bit. Yeah, uh, I will take my iPhone that we're speaking on right now and uh, set it up next to me as I'm practicing, and as I get an idea, I'll selfie video and explain the idea into the camera you know here's the here's the first part and then here this is where the chorus will start and and i got hundreds and hundreds of little snippets of me describing uh the basis for a song that later on i'll uh, I, and then i go back and review and pick one out that's that sits right with me and and build the song around it so yeah i've i've uh, I've written stuff from a very early start, but I didn't really get a chance to get it into a band until a few years into it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and I, am I'm, I'm real happy that I spent a lot of years as a copy band, a yeah. cover band is, was one of the, that's the best training in the world. And every, every player I know that's, that is worth their playing that <laughs> they, they played cover songs. They played copy tunes for years. Hendrix did Van Allen did, you know, everybody did, yeah. uh, Bon Scott did, Ronnie James Dio did, and all these guys—they all played. I got Ronnie James Dio basically doing lounge music uh, as a young man, starting out uh, playing in clubs. I got uh, that in my iTunes collection. I play for people. say, so guess the singer. They—they're—they're they're clueless, and I go, Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> they, they can't believe it. He, he was a lounge bon singer Scott too. Was that?
0: He, uh, Ronnie James Dio, was a lounge singer.
1: Well, he yeah, he's he uh, played and sang uh, a lot of very loungy songs in the uh, '60s. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, because everybody thinks they just you know unleash, uh, throw horns and, yeah, and yeah, play yeah. heavy metal. But it, you, to really be a great singer like he was, he, he conquered a lot of types of singing before he ever got to metal. Pretty amazing.
0: But I know you, you wrote um, Shy Boy, that I think first was a talis song, and then you used it with Dave Lee Roth on his first uh, solo uh, album, yeah. Eat Him and Smile. But um, did uh-huh. you did you also co-write and write, write songs for Mr. Big?
1: Oh, yeah. Addicted to That Rush is my song. Uh, Daddy, Brother, Lover, Little Boy, the drill song, that's mine. Uh, Had Enough is mine. Whole bunch. And Great. then we also wrote uh, quite a bit together. The, first, the second record, we did a lot of that writing together. Alive mm-hmm. uh, uh, and Kickin', uh, we wrote together. Me, uh, the drummer, and Paul. And uh, Colorado Build Dog, we wrote that together. A lot of stuff.
0: Cool, cool. And so, you, and that's still what, does that say, what, 40% of what you still do songwriting or? or
1: uh, what do you yeah, write? probably. Yeah, And, and it, it comes in waves too for a while. I'll get into a writing mode and. and you know, get 10, 20, 30 pieces uh, up up to speed. Uh, it's uh, and then my my reject song folder is massive. <laughs> <So> <laughs> once in a while, I go back and revisit some of those, and maybe pull a part out or or use the parts that are good and abandon the ones that are bad. So. You know, it's an ongoing process. And when you do write, do you
0: um, do you like finish? Do you, you put the the drums down and bass and guitars, and you sing on it as well? Do you, do you make finished demos at your place at your studio?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've done it a lot. I've done uh, all the songs on my three solo records. I basically demoed out, and and uh, in full uh ray played on the last two solo records of the cosmic troubadour and holy cow yeah went in the studio with him and he he laid him down took the drum tracks back to my home studio and finished everything else it's pretty uh, standard operating procedure
0: but do so here's the question also because you said you really take inspiration from drummers do you play drums yourself at all
1: I can I can get around the kit a little bit. I was better at it a few years ago, but I'm but I'm a bit out of practice. So uh, Dennis was kind enough to send me a, a little kit, the Pearl Rhythm Traveler. It's a little tiny kit you can set up easy in a small part of the room, but it's still a you know a real drum set. And then Ray was kind enough uh, to come over and tune them. <laughs> He's a great <laughs> drum tuner. So when I sit down, it actually sound like something now. And uh, but uh, you know I think it's a, I, I implore bass players all the time to you know just kick, hat, snare, do a beat. Yeah. Be able to play a beat with a, you know, on a hi-hat ride cymbal, do a, a couple little simple fills, but just keep time and understand drums and drum language and drum, the drum universe, because uh, that's who you're going to be communicating with mostly uh, as, as a part of the rhythm section. So you're going to want to know what what he's doing and why he's doing, how hard it is, what you're capable of. I've seen it happen. Instrument to instrument, like a keyboard player will sometimes give me a bass part to learn, but it's a keyboard part. It's not a bass part, uh, and so it yeah. becomes almost impossible to play on frets and strings because they weren't thinking it through and thinking, "Oh, he's got to play this on a different instrument than what I have." So I'm then I'm then I'm challenged with the task of creating, of somehow being able to play these keyboard lines that are really. Uh, somewhat impossible on a bass somehow in the end i always uh come up with something but 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 it's the keyboard player knows bass and knows bass parts really well just like an orchestra leader would never give uh you know a tuba player a paganini violin part to play <laughs> so that it doesn't work on tuba you know so uh, you kind of got to know the instrument you're dealing with so for bass players to know drums is a is a great great uh, great uh uh, asset. I did a um, an on online uh, little forum the other day from Berkeley College of Music, uh, kind of a tribute to Dennis Chambers and uh, <laughs> Lenny White was there. Peter Erskine, uh, Greg Bisignat. It was about it was half drummers and half bass players there uh, talking, just telling Dennis Chambers story. And Dennis was there too in us too, but uh, it's amazing to see so many great drummers uh, together honoring one guy. And so many bass players they're kind of in the same thing so that bass and drum connection uh is quite verified by an event like that
0: so here's also something i want to ask you because we talked about drummers that you have played with that you that you take inspiration from that you really really dig and you you mentioned of course dennis chambers um but if you want to talk about drummers that you haven't played with or drummers drummers that have you inspired you from listening to music who would who would you pick out specifically
1: Billy Cobham. He yeah. was the man. He changed he changed everything. I remember when he came on the scene. We went to see a band called Dreams, which was his one of his first bands, the Brecker Brothers on Horn. Jonathan Edwards was opening up for a dollar fifty at University of Buffalo. Wow. <laughs> and we went Jonathan Edwards was awesome, great, and Dreams came on. And nobody could believe this drummer and he blew everybody's minds and from then on then when my vision came out uh of course it was way into the dreams record it was a pretty great record will lee eventually became their bass player too so it's quite a quite a stellar uh, lineup in that band yeah he but, was uh, a
0: saturday night live bass player wasn't he or was he uh, late show
1: uh, late night with david letterman yeah that's what it was okay yeah great player and great singer but uh so then i went on to become a, a billy Cobb fanatic and then when uh uh, Spectrum, that was his first solo record, came out. Oh yeah, man, it just blew our minds, and it was. Uh, so he was a big, big influence on me. Again, being a bass player and watching drummers closely, he was a he was a big deal to me. Uh, never got to play with him. Ian Pace is another one from Deep Purple. I've got. Uh, everybody knows the uh, Made in Japan, the live Deep Purple record, or anyone, everyone from my generation knows it. Pretty great record, but. Similar to a lot of the live records, it was a compilation of several shows. And when I was in Japan, I got the bootleg CD of all the shows that led to that record and all the different versions of the same songs that were on that record. And one of them, Ian did that drum solo that tore at the top of my head completely off. He was just, just brilliant. And plus he had a real a unique uh, approach to what he was doing for a band like Deep Purple anyway, and it which was, it was really made them stand out a lot. Ian, I've met him a few times. He's been very kind to come to shows with his, uh, I believe with his son. Um, he's he showed up to a couple shows we've played. He's a wonderful guy too, but I've never had the opportunity to play with him. And uh, unfortunately we lost Buddy Rich, but man, what a... I, don't, I would like to go, uh, if I could go back in time and play for Buddy Rich, just so he could yell at me <laughs> and, and scream at me and tell me what sucks about my playing. So, <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't hold back. That would be a great lesson.
0: Well, I think the cool thing about Ian Pace is like he, he actually kind of put the jazz touch into rock. which Very much know, like Mitch Mitchell with Hendrix. Yeah, know? yeah. And you can say, I mean, Ginger Baker was definitely a jazz drummer and playing rock and roll. <laughs> But, yeah. but in a very different style, but I think just like his, you know, his roles and everything that Ian Pace does is just amazing.
1: Yeah, quite a, there's quite a spectrum of uh, drummers uh, uh, across the uh, universe here. So it's, 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 it's almost unlimited uh, uh, stylistic uh, of motifs. To, from. It's uh, pretty amazing.
0: And a very cool thing about the Spectrum album that you were talking about with Billy Cobbler is that there's, there's one bass line that comes out of there, uh Lee Sklar. Um yeah. and that is just that bass that 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 bass riff is just insane.
1: Yeah, he's uh I had no idea that was Lee uh for, for many, many years. Uh I don't remember seeing seeing it on the album cover, but I had the record. Uh, but that that particular record is, is um and uh, stratus isn't particularly uh near and dear to me because i the drummer that's in talus now before i'd heard heard of him somebody gave me a tape of him covering stratus okay and it was it was a, about a third faster than the original but he annihilated on it and uh, who is this guy i must play with him and that's mark miller he's the uh, the current uh, drummer with Talos, and He's the guy, uh, I know Mike Portnoy uh, gave me a photo of the first Dream Theater rehearsal with him as bass player and guitar player, and Mike is wearing a Talis shirt because he used to come and watch Mark and when, <laughs> when we played in New York when he was still in school. <clears> the <throat> same with Ray Lugier. Ray Lugier is a huge Mark Miller fan when he saw Mark play. When we played back in the day when he was you know just in the audience as a kid, uh, he tells great Stories about how they get a shaky, horrible video and just try to watch it in a bootleg video. Try to watch it to see what Mark is doing. Pretty amazing player. So, and, and Mark they're, they're,
0: was a drummer way back when you guys were playing together, right?
1: Yeah, in yeah. the in the Talus that was eighty three to eighty five.
0: Okay, okay, and and what you're doing now? That's also Mark playing. Say again, uh, you're you're recording with Talos again, right?
1: Yeah, Mark is on this current record. Yeah.
0: Cool. I have to check out this guy because I haven't. I, I obviously, need to check check out Mark Miller then. Mind-blowing.
1: He's uh, he had all roto tom kit. Wow. All, all ro- roto toms across the, uh, the uh, rack toms and floor toms are all roto toms. He made it himself. <laughs> he he bent the tubing to mount the stub. I, I, the the, the roto on a tree outside his house. He's an <laughs> unstoppable uh, craftsman. He built his own house. He can do. He had an old. Uh, piece of teak i just saw him post the other day and he made a snare drum a teak snare drum out of it the other day and he demonstrates it on his facebook page but he's a one of the sweetest guys i know in the world and just a mind-blowing drummer it's just uh people would be close up to the stage and stages are only sometimes eight or ten inches high and people would jam right up to the front of the stage mark started playing people would be pushing back out of fear <laughs> <between> <laughs> Pieces of stick and symbol are flying through the air, and uh, his timing is just exquisite. And uh, he's a great player. But that all the connection to that came because he he played that Billy Cobb piece, which I was so enamored with, and he did it so great that that's how I ended up playing with him. But Billy Cobb, I'll get back to your original question, Billy Cobb, me and Pace, Buddy Rich, I wish. Uh, and I've been lucky to play with uh, most. Uh, I, I did a track with Vinnie Colaiuta. I did an album with. Uh, Steve Smith, a lot of great, great players. And uh, I, th- all of them influenced me in a very positive way. I'm pretty awesome.
0: And to, um, to get an answer to the girls, uh, the girl in Oslo's question, uh, what base players today inspire you or, or if you're looking back, what has been like very important for you as a base player?
1: Yeah, I have to apologize that I'm not really up on a lot of guys, uh, a lot of new guys. Uh, unfortunately, I, uh, Oftentimes, there's so much music that I miss, that all of us have missed, that has gone on because there's only so many hours in the day, and, and you try to listen to everything that you can, but still there's dozens of bands that neither one of us have ever heard of that are amazing that we would love. So I find myself often going backwards and listening to stuff that I missed. Wasn't into uh, when I was younger that I know, you know had carried a reputation through the years. So uh, going back and listening to Glenn Cornick, he was a bass player for uh, Jethro Tall. Oh, amazing yeah. player. He played later he played in a band called Paris.
0: I'm sorry, come again?
1: Uh, he, he played in a band called Paris after okay. that. Okay. Okay. Pretty great. Tim Bogert, I'm a huge Tim Bogert fan. Yeah. Uh, he played with the Vanilla Fudge and uh, Beck Bogert Apicy and and. Cactus, just cactus, yeah. great, just a great player, wonderful guy too. He's probably my biggest influence, uh, and a- along with the drummers on the panel I mentioned the other day from Berkeley it was Ron Carter. So Ray Brown, Ron Carter, old stand-up um, grand masters like those guys, I love to listen to, and get an idea of how they're approaching things. So there's there's a a universe of uh, possibilities out there, and there's only 24 hours in the day, unfortunately.
0: Did you ever do any stand-up uh, bass yourself, double bass?
1: A little bit. Yeah. yeah. I had an Ampeg baby bass, but I've also had two stand-ups over the years. One was all aluminum. It was sheet aluminum made in World War II. Wow. Pretty amazing. Uh, I'm sorry I ever got rid of it. uh, uh Somebody had painted it orange, so I stripped it, and and uh, it was great bass. It played really well. And then years later, I got a full-size stand-up that I had in my house in 94 in LA when we had the earthquake. It fell over and uh, cracked. Wow. I sold it off to somebody who was going to fix it, and then I have yet to re- to replace it. So that's one of my quests in uh, Nashville, although I'm not in the market to be buying much now. I'm, we're watching our money because there's no... I won't be working for a, an, at least another year and a half. So, yeah. but when the time comes, I'd like to get another great stand-up bass.
0: And you, um, do you have any? You pr- probably have a couple of fretless basses in your collection, right?
1: Yeah, a, an attitude bass that they did fretless for me, and then an acoustic guitar-style bass that from Yamaha, the fretless also. I use the fretless uh, first time on a on damn good on the skyscraper record. Oh, yeah. Roth. I didn't have one, and they called me at 8 in the morning and said, uh, come out of the studio, we want you to do fretless. And I, I grabbed a clothing iron, took the, fret, took the strings off a of Fernandez bass that they were kind enough to give me, put wow. the clothing iron hot on the frets, popped them off, gave it a once over with 600 grit sandpaper, put the strings back on, drove down, did the track, came wow. back and I don't know whatever happened to that bass, but I think I sold it off.
0: Well, Fernandez bases are really
1: some of them are really good bases as well, right? Great, they're great stuff. Great company, yeah. But how, they were based in L.A., and I knew a guy there, so they were kind enough to lay one on me. So, fortunately, that was the base. Unfortunately, I've gotten rid of or lost track with a lot of great bases over the years, which I, I regret great greatly. I, I wish I still had that. I remember, but I, but I have a couple of fretlesses I can rely on.
0: I remember you had a pink, I think it was a pink Yamaha bass when you were playing with Daily Roth in the Going Crazy yeah. video,
1: right? You still have that bass, right? Yeah, that's that Yamaha now being refurbished because i take taken a couple pickups off and moved things around so they're putting it back in its original shape. How long have you been with Yamaha? I've heard a rumor that I may <laughs> have the longest signature bass endorsement deal uh, That's pretty ever, cool. <laughs> with, 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 a, with a company. So, uh, uh, Don't leave I start. <laughs> <laughs> I started with them actually in 84. I came out to L.A. with the version of Talos I'm referring to with Mark Miller in December of 84 to play a show. And a Yamaha contacted me and wanted me to come out. And I talked with them, and they said, well, we're going to make a bass for you. And at the time, my Fender was my only bass, but it was Beat. And I knew I was going to have to replace it at some point because I had a backup for it. But it was it was it was pounded and trashed. And at the time, Fender wasn't really making great instruments. Uh, unfortunately, with a, a great company like Fender, who was as good as ever now. What year are we little, talking about? Is it very early? It late 70s. 80, 83, 84, 85 around there. Okay and you know if you look around for basses and guitars made in that period they're not worth a lot because they, they they kind of lost their way hopefully they're back and it's good or better than ever but uh yamaha came along and their quality control is second to none yeah and so when they, i started they we started basically uh, in 84 they had that base for me uh summer now, like late fall of 85 they had the uh the pink uh it's actually rose blue. I caught a lot of heat that I had a pink base. It was supposed to be bluer than that, but in pictures it shows up pink because it's just, it's it's uh, uh iridescent. <laughs> so unfortunately, I I got I got uh, branded with that pink base. Uh, sadly, but it is really it looks more blue when you see it live. It, it's um, a sign of the times, though, isn't it? Yeah, at the time everything was a little glammy, but uh, yeah, you know who, who knows? It was a great bass and still plays really great, and I I, I love it. And uh, so I'll get that back probably a couple months now. They're refurbishing as I said.
0: Well, you know, and we're talking about Yamaha as a company. And I play Yamaha drums. And and w- what other company in the world makes fantastic uh, bass guitars, guitars, uh, drums, keyboards, speakers, pianos, pianos exactly, trumpets, and, and they they make. And and from what I've understood, they own all their own factories. But you probably know more about this than I do.
1: I do believe that they've purchased uh, forest land in Indonesia and other places in Southeast Asia, so they can uh, control responsibly harvest the woods uh, without endangering uh, the environment. Uh, so they're they're very conscious about that. Uh, so uh, it's it's a they're a great company, and uh, like I said, the quality control is second to none. I've been there to their factories i've been where they make the attitude base and you could serve food right on the floor and eat it off the floor it's so clean
0: but that it's japan? surgically
1: clean you could, do, in... you could do brain surgery at any <laughs> anywhere in, in the place no worries of infection it's really clean and that was japan right yeah that's in hamamatsu city of hamamatsu japan because it's got this... kind of a Yama, yamaha city there
0: yeah because they still have factories where they do all the high high-end stuff right
1: yeah my bases are handmade there In uh, in Hamamatsu, Uh, they do job other things out to factories in uh, Indonesia, uh, Korea, a couple other uh, Korea too, I believe. But the good thing about Yamaha is they always have boots on the ground, and their 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 uh, oversight of the factories uh, is is very very tight. I know Ampeg back in the uh, 90s decided to manufacture. They got bought out by Loud Technologies and manufacture in China. And I don't believe they had anyone there. So the Chinese, the manufacturers, were going to save five cents per unit by s- switching out one component for another one. And unfortunately, the amps were just really—it was very sad. to See, as they were, I did—I would do clinics and have the amps fail at the clinic. So I had to unfortunately leave Yamaha. So the idea of manufacturing in another country isn't just so easy as going there <laughs> you wow. need to really know what you're doing and yamaha's got it down so they're i'm really really pleased to be with them this long they've been very very kind to me and uh these bases kill as a Matter of fact, working on this record the other day uh that i described to you before the record that ray and i are working on mm-hmm. uh i just plugged into a direct box and and played a few notes to get an idea of what the baseline is going to be on one particular song and the engineer freak <laughs> now, 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 he's like, "You gotta get me one of those bases. You gotta get me one." So, I go, like, "They're tough to get, though. They, they don't make very many. You know, two hundred or three hundred a year." So, and they have, uh, they
0: have two outputs, right?
1: Yeah, double yeah. output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is not as rare as you might think. Rickenbacker had the RICO sound on their Rickenbacker bases, stereo output all the early alembic bases came with a with a dual output all the early the stanley clark versions and all that they were all dual output so it does solve a few essential things for bass when you split the output and send it to two different places i did that on my old p bass back in the early early 70s okay used it like that for so long that i got so used to it I, that's what i'm going to need if i'm you know i can go out and do a show or a gig or a jam with a single regular old p bass style pickup on anything, or or any bass, really, but to really do the thing the way I, I like to do it within a band where I'm on, under control of my gear, uh, the dual output thing. A lot of people are into it now, too. A lot of guys are making their own because they did what I did. I just stuck an EBO pickup on a Fender Precision bass and gave it a separate output because I didn't know how to wire it to one output. So my ignorance was uh, came in handy there. Wow. But I had the dual output. So,
0: but, I mean, so anybody you, could do it. Do you? Check yourself when you go out and travel in like smaller,
1: smaller settings. No, I need somebody to be there. Uh, but I, I try to make his job easy. So a lot of times, I'll change my own strings and do that because I, I also when you get the when you're really familiar with your instrument and uh, change the strings, anything that's not right, you're gonna notice right away. Yeah. You don't want to notice it when you're on stage. And. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I can make sure I get the strings. I I go for a whole show without tuning sometimes. You know, really, and, and get to, yeah, get to the end of the night and still in tune. It drives me crazy to see people tuning in between every single song. Yeah. So if you put your strings on correctly, and do it right, they're not going to move, and you'll stay in tune for the whole night. It's it's I've done it for decades. <laughs> so, so I try. I do some of the things myself because I, I've never been a i uh w- w- one of the worst insults you can say to me is to call me a rock star i hate that shit i hate that. <laughs> i hate that uh aloof uh you know uh, uh standing above uh, others or asserting your dominance uh whatever
0: you Just seem pretty down to earth.
1: Well, I, I, I um, uh, that's how that's kind of, I kind of grew up that way and it was kind of good playing in clubs in the early days is there was no dressing room. Yeah. So you get done with the show and you step off the stage and hang out with everybody. And so there wasn't really no separation of band and audience. We were part of them and they were my friends. So it was never like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm this big, awesome guy here. And, you know, you people stand back, you know, so we we're always, <coughs> pardon me, hands on with the audience, hanging out, uh, you know uh you know working on my own bass cuz there was nobody in town to do it so i had to figure it out myself working on my own amps put my own racks together soldering wiring all that stuff you know so that's uh, it, it it's I, I i prefer that
0: so you know, it i know any-
1: i know guys that don't do anything on their instrument guitarists drummers uh bass players and uh good for them that's that's cool but i kind of like to be hands on
0: so, so being like you know, hanging out with the audience after the show it must have been a pretty kind of like a shock for you to start playing with David Lee Roth because I don't think there was much of that going on on those tours.
1: Well, but I would still always kind of come out and go by the tour bus and there's fans there. And even now, uh, unfortunately, a lot of bands have to do the uh, paid meet and greet. Oh yeah, uh, because you know there's bills to pay. Yeah, and you and you kind of got to do it. So. Uh, does that seem I awkward prefer, to you? I always tell people, they write to me, you know, I can't afford the money for that thing. I go, well, just if you're outside, when the show's over. After I take a shower, I come up by the bus and it doesn't cost a thing and I'll sign everything and take photos and we're good. You know, no problem. I love doing that. As you know, I've met, met some amazing people through the years and, and people that are still my dear friend for forever Uh, by doing things of that nature, you know? So I, I, I still do like to put my thumb on the pulse of what's going on out there. I think it's important.
0: Or like Dave would say, wait a second, that's not his thumb. (laughs) <laughs> no, sorry <laughs> no but uh, so I mean, I, that's, I'm pretty impressed about that because I like the energy as well because you're very energetic on stage and, and you know you, you really have to be very physical and we, when you're finished I think you'll be exhausted and not maybe want to meet a bunch of people or you know but you do that still
1: yeah I I do uh, like uh, to hang out with people and it's, and it's a blast too I mean we have a fun time you know in Europe, especially, things are a little, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy thing to do. You don't have to worry so much about security and what have you. What are, what are like, the, your favorite cities to play in Europe? Oh, anywhere in Italy is great because the Italians are wonderful people. So afterwards, you come out, and I got a lot of friends there. My wife's from Italy. So uh, we have a common uh, <laughs> ground there. And I uh, so always bring a bottle of vino or uh, something you know, it's a gift, very generous, and uh, we enjoy it on the bus later, and it's, it's quite, it's it's quite, I am very, very lucky, I've got a, just a great situation with the, and I, I hate to even call them fans, I refer to them more as my friends, and people that come see me play, it's fantastic, and i am touch with them on Facebook, and Instagram, and all that stuff all the time, and some some really great friendships have developed over the years.
0: An interesting thing <laughs> about Italy and, and music is, and and I haven't really heard. Now I'm not very very much into a lot of Italian modern you know music, but I haven't heard that much great modern music come out of Italy. But one thing I do know about Italy is they've always been really into progressive rock.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, it's got a great huge in that country. Italian prog from the '60s and '70s. There was a zillion bands back then.
0: I know, and and, the, that. and some of the, you know, some of the big progressive rock bands from the 70s, you know, the internationally British ones or American ones are huge there still, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, Europe in general. I mean, people when, um, you know, people always make an example of Mr. Big. Oh, yeah, they're, they're big in Japan. I go, well, you know, we, we, we there, there was at one point three Mr. Big copy bands, in Italy alone wow. <laughs> we had you know we, we would do you know festivals in Europe and in South America it's just huge attendance it's great so uh, you know the, the world for rock and roll is, is uh, for a lot of American bands unfortunately that they, they don't always know how big it really is and how what the real and great potential you have of uh, South America is amazing it's a great rock market every country uh, they love uh, a lot of the bands that I've played in and so many other bands it's it's wonderful uh, Italy Germany uh, I, I, as you as you know all through Scandinavia France great we did a winery dog show in Paris you couldn't fit another person into the room unless you cut them into pieces and put they <laughs> pushed them in. It was so crowded. Uh, England, of course, Ireland, Scotland, just great. Uh, so it, it, it's I'm glad that it's it's still so broad too. Plus, it gives us the opportunity to travel to all these places, and it's it's quite awesome.
0: I've heard. Just incredible stories about both Japan, but also South America's two two places I haven't really been that much, and I haven't played there at least. Uh, but uh, did you ever go w- w- with David Lee Roth and play in South America anywhere at all? Did you tour there?
1: No, no. We just Edam Smile was USA and Canada only. Really? Yeah, but Skyscraper.
0: But that was then. Then you were out of it, right? You were. You were. Out. Yeah, I didn't yeah. do a Skyscraper tour. I was, always feel
1: bad because people will write to me and say, I saw you in London with David Lee Rawls that wasn't me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Greg's brother, Matt, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Matt is not. Uh but so so you didn't ever go to no, it was only Canada and the US with fighting the spawn, which is strange really. I don't know why why do you know why I that happened?
1: I don't know why either. And we had done the record in Spanish too.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was my point. Uh
1: Salvaje. <laughs> that was the yeah. title of the album, I
0: think, in Spanish.
1: Yeah, D- Dave and I went into the studio and re-sung everything yeah. to, the original, to the original tracks, you know. Because you, so did, all, you did
0: most of the backup vocals with Dave?
1: Yeah, it was Dave and I in there doing
0: it all. Wow. That's pretty cool. It was cool.
1: I love working with Dave. He's, he, he, he's still my hero, and that was the greatest thing ever happened to me. <laughs> I had that phone call, and he flew me out to L.A. to start a band. And it's just a, I, I, I'm supremely grateful for eternity.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah, of course. But you did play on the skyscraper album but not on the tour, right? Is that True. correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I've heard you said you were in and um I think it was a Swedish podcast that you did an interview with or talk with, and you said that they that was gonna go so like, you know, he was going into the dance music and but he also wanted to hire in and and uh back up vocals, but you, you went and did some vocal uh practice and got Yes yeah, coaching coaching yeah. yeah so you could do the the vocals on the album instead right
1: well it, it turned out we did sing everything on on the record uh, they brought in some studio singers and me and uh brett in particular the keyboard player who's got yeah. an amazing voice brett tuggle uh, yeah we we were kind of looking at each other like what what are you gonna, why do we bring in other people Why why don't we sing it and it was just uh, there's a lot of misdirection in that in the, in the putting of that record together, and it wasn't put together like Eat and Smile. It was uh, we everybody came in one at a time. We never played together as a band. It was all put together under a microscope, and they'd do a, a whole day doing a mix with a hi hat uh, half a dB up, and then the next day they'd do a whole mix with the hi hat half a dB down. Wow. And it's like, come on, you guys, you're you're you're. You're overthinking this, <laughs> and uh, so that was the beginning of uh, the end of my situation there, because it just was—it was—it kind of drove me crazy. But, but I wished him well, and and uh, in, like I said, uh, I believe I probably uh, continued on uh, in that particular pod- podcast. And I'll reiterate it here: is that if the album would have worked, Dave would be, would have been you know the greatest hero of all time, mm. bringing dance and rock together in one format would have been great. But unfortunately the dance people hate the rock people and the rock people hate the dance people. <laughs> so you, it's, it's hard to walk that line. If you would have been able to do it and if anybody could have done it, it would probably would have been Dave because he's good at that. But unfortunately it didn't work or there's a million reasons why a record doesn't do well. No. Uh, and, and a lot of them are behind the scenes. You never, you can never really tell you can hear a great record. It's just awesome. And it goes nowhere you hear a record that's, eh, it's okay, and it's giant. So there's all kinds of things at play. It's quite an elaborate and involved uh, business when it comes to records, radio, and hits. Uh, It's a a wild ride, you know. So uh, I would never pretend to know much more about it. So that's why I leave that. I hire the guys to do that stuff and they get their commission and then let me play bass. <laughs>
0: well, but I would, I would, you know, I would argue that um, just like paradise has been a pretty big hit for Dave and that's a pretty, pretty good pop song, I have to say. Um, and you mentioned, like you mentioned, when we talk about the fretless bass, damn good is also on that album, which is also another great uh, tune. Uh,
1: you know? Yeah. I like. Uh, it took me a long time. It was an emotional component for me because I was, you know, there, there was some contention uh, regarding that record. So I didn't even listen to the record for years. Then when okay. I finally went back and listened to it, you know, there's some stuff on there that, that's pretty cool. I, I, I just, it just the record just didn't work for me. Like, for another example, I love Sammy Hagar. I love his voice. The first Montrose record, one of the greatest records ever, Denny Carmasi on drums. He's a, he's a drummer that worked with me when we were going to play together with Michael Schenker. Amazing okay. drummer. Just that opening drum beat from Rock Candy got him more more gigs and more sessions than anything ever. Amazing, uh, uh, but Sammy, when he joined Van Halen, didn't work for me. Sorry. Well, great. He, you know, great. I, I'm not going to argue with you on that
0: one, my friend. <laughs> What's that? I'm not going to argue with with you on that one. I'm, I, you know, I mean, well, Dave, you you can't follow Dave in Van Halen. That's I don't think it's, that's it's possible.
1: But Sammy, did, he sang great, and, 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 there, and the records were hugely successful. So God bless him. That's fantastic. But, you know, and it, it's also tough with fans. You can't ever say that you don't like something yeah. because then they think that you hate someone. Yeah, yeah. You know, something doesn't happen to be my cup of tea. doesn't mean that it's bad. No, no. It's just an just, opinion. It's could awesome. It's just it just doesn't touch me. You see a beautiful girl and uh, – uh, Sometimes something about her just doesn't do it for you, you know. She talks to you, and something about her personality. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but she's beautiful. Yeah, but it's not working for me. I, I just it's, it's, we don't click. It's similar <laughs> with our relationship with bands and music. You know, sometimes it's great. I thought those those records sold like 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 uh, wild. Yeah. But it just wasn't my thing just wasn't my thing, unfortunately. And some things just aren't my thing. A lot of modern prog, it kind of leaves me cold. Mm -hmm. I grew up on the original King Crimson Genesis, uh, uh, bands like that, Mahavishnu Orchestra. So when I hear the modern stuff, it just doesn't do it for me like that. And I'm an older older generation, an older guy, so that's my excuse. It doesn't mean the modern prog is not great or better even, but it's just not my thing.
0: And that's just an honest, you know, that's your honest opinion. I, I think Sammy Hagar did two great things in his life, and that was Montrose and tequila. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, he, and he was remunerated much more highly for the tequila. Than he Montrose, got a lot also. of money for that. He got a lot good of money him, for good that. For him. And I've, I've jammed with him and played with him, and he is a wonderful, sweet, great guy. And his voice is as good as ever. Yeah. Generous, wonderful man. I love him dearly. Uh, uh, and I'm uh, honored to have ever uh, even met him. But we were doing a rock and roll fantasy camp, and w- somebody yelled out, What when Sammy was like up on stage, and they're kind of interviewing in front of the whole thing? And why don't you have know Billy Sheehan come up?" And I, I looked at who said it, and, and he goes, "Yeah, come on up." He says, uh, "What what what Montrose songs do you know?" And is it all of them? <laughs> <laughs> So we did Space Station Number 5 and it was uh, a bucket list moment. How great, I love I love that record and I love Sammy's voice on it.
0: But um, departing from Dave after Skyscraper uh, and not doing the tour, it was not that long after that Mr. Big started, am I right?
1: How yeah, I long- started right away because I was out of work and I want to wanna have a band and get rolling. Initially I spoke with uh, Steve Stevens. Ted Templeman was uh, helping me at the time. And he hooked me up with Steve Stevens. It, Steve was great. Didn't quite work out. He, he, uh, it was on a different path than I was, but I loved his playing. It was a great experience hanging with him and seeing how, how he functions as a guitar player. Pretty awesome. Uh, so I went and, uh, I, I knew of Paul Gilbert and I also knew a Pat Torpy. And so I had to find a singer. So I found uh, Eric Martin up in uh, San Francisco through a friend. And, uh, then off we went. And, uh, we're very, very lucky to have Herbie Herbert as our manager, and that was a, he was one of the most powerful men in the music biz, and he really, he's the, the man behind the scenes that made it all happen.
0: Yeah, so you probably did a very, you know, good, a wise decision that time to to actually leave Dave and, and do something else. I mean, apparently, because Mr. Big was very successful worldwide.
1: Yeah, we uh, we got smart early on and played a lot of foreign markets. Yeah, uh, all over the place where not only Japan, but we played the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia, Thailand, Korea. I get more email from Indonesia than anywhere in the world. <laughs> You're kidding me. That's it's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. And they're sweet, nice, wonderful people. We go down there, and it's just uh, all hell breaks loose. There's <laughs> it's, it's, it's thousands of people, and it's it's fantastic. So in South America, too, we went down there early on. In Europe, we did a lot of touring in Europe. So we go back there to any of those places now, and we, we do great business, wonderful people, and... Uh, you know, we're in in, in the music uh, to express ourselves and be musicians, but it's nice when you get paid for it, too. And uh, fortunately, we have very smart management and great agents, and they got us all over the place and created a groundswell of support for the band that exists to this day. So we can go out and do shows and come back with a paycheck, and uh, everybody's happy.
0: That's pretty great, man. Um, yeah. I, I not too long ago uh, read the Ted Templeman um, biography written by yeah, um, yeah. Greg Renoff. Uh, I don't. You probably haven't read it, have you? I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> oh yeah, you're reading it now.
1: Yeah. Okay. So h- how was Ted Templeman to work with? Fantastic, sweet man. Just he knew when to put his hands on and when to take his hands off. He was just great. Let, let, when the band was doing the thing, he'd let us do our thing. Once in a while, he had to come in and step in and. And uh, change something, but, uh, but he's a genius. Uh, he, he's he's great inspiration to me as a producer to just see sometimes sometimes shut up and yeah. sometimes speak up. <laughs> you got to know when yeah, if yeah. you can diplomatically and artistically do that correctly. You got You got it down. And so I, I I follow his lead when I'm doing production with artists now. And and you know I know sometimes you know I, I let 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 this stand. Let this go yeah but this that that other thing we're gonna change that you know so but he was just great at that just wonderful sweet friendly man and uh deserving more even more of all the success that he's had which is quite awesome
0: yeah he had a lot of success and and again he was a drummer yeah There you go. <laughs> Listen, Billy. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'll send you the link as soon as we got it up and, and running, and, and I'll send Great. you the Spotify link as well if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it won't
1: be mixed in with any Talos records. So <laughs> well, Easy to fine.
0: Looking forward to hearing more music from you, uh, Billy. And thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Uh, send me that link, and I'll post it everywhere. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, Absolutely. man. All Take right. Care. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.